All right, I'm ready <laughs> again. <laughs> Welcome back. Welcome back to Rejects Book Club, where Constance, aka me, reads you a chapter a day. The Last Unicorn by Peter S. Beagle. Chapter 6. Coming live from the Catskills. What up, though? <laughs> Captain Cully fell asleep 13 stanzas into the 19th song, and Smendrick, who had stopped laughing somewhat sooner, promptly set about trying to free himself. He strained against his bonds with all his strength, but they held fast. Jack Jingley had wrapped him in enough rope to rig a big shoner and tie knots the size of skulls. Gently, gently, he counseled himself. No man with the power to summon Robin Hood, indeed, to create him, can be bound for long. A word, a wish, and this tree must be an acorn on a branch again. This rope be green and marsh. But he knew before he called on it that whatever had visited him for a moment was gone. Leaving only an ache where it had been, he felt like an abandoned chrysalis. Do as you will, he said softly. Captain Cully roused at his voice and sang a 14th stanza. There are 50 swords without the house and 50 more within. And I, and I do fear me, Captain, they are like to do us in. Ha done, ha done, said Captain Cully. And never fear again. For they may be a hundred swords, but we are seven men. I hope you get slaughtered, the magician told him. But Cully was asleep again. Smendrick attempted a few simple spells for escaping, but he could not use his hands. And he had no more heart for tricks. What happened instead was that the tree fell in love with him and began to murmur fondly of the joy to be found in the eternal embrace of Red Oak. Always, always, it sighed. Faithfulness beyond any man's deserving. I will keep the color of your eyes when no other in the world remembers your name. There is no immortality but a tree's love. I'm engaged, Smendrick excused himself, to a western larch since childhood. Marriage by contract, no choice in the matter, hopeless. Our story is never to be. A gust of fury shook the oak, as though a storm were coming to it alone. Gals and fireball on her, it whispered savagely. Damn softwood, cursed conifer, deceitful evergreen, she'll never have you. We will perish together, and all trees shall treasure our tragedy. Along his length, Smendrick could feel the tree heaving like a heart, and he feared that it might actually split in two with rage. The ropes were growing steadily lighter around him, and the night was beginning to turn red and yellow. He tried to explain to the oak that love was generous precisely because it can never be immortal. And then he tried to yell for Captain Cully, but he could only make a small, creaking sound like a tree. She means well, he thought, and gave himself up for loved. Then the ropes went slack as he lunged against them, and he fell to the ground on his back, wriggling for air. The unicorn stood over him, dark as blood in his darkened vision. She touched him with her horn. When he could rise, she turned away, and the magician followed her, wary of the oak, though it was once again as still as any tree that had ever loved. The sky was still black, but it was the watery darkness, though which Smendrick could see the violet dawn swimming. Hard silver clouds were melting as the sky grew warm, shadows dulled, sounds to their shape. The shapes had not been decided what they were going to be that day. Even the wind wondered about itself. Did you see me? He asked the unicorn. Were you watching? Did you see what I made? 
Yes, she answered. It was true magic. The loss came back, cold and bitter as a sword. It's gone now, he said. I had it, it had me, but it's gone now. I couldn't hold it. The unicorn floated on before him, silent as a feather. Close by, a familiar voice said, Leaving us so early, magician. The men will be sorry that they missed you. He turned and saw Molly Grew, leaning against a tree. Dress and hair tattered alike. Bare feet bleeding and beslimed. She gave him a bat's grin. Surprise, she said. It's Maid Marian. Then she saw the unicorn. She neither moved nor spoke, but her tawny eyes were suddenly big with tears. For a moment, she did not move. Then, each fist seized a handful of her hem, and she warped her knees into a kind of trembling crouch. Her ankles were crossed and her eyes were lowered. But for all that it looked, it took Smendrick another moment to realize that Molly Grew was curtsying. He burst out laughing, and Molly sprang up, red from hairline to throat hollow. Where have you been? she cried. Damn you! Where have you been? She took a few steps towards Smendrick, but she was looking beyond him at the unicorn. When she tried to get by, the magician stood in her way. You don't talk like that, he told her, still uncertain that Molly had recognized the unicorn. Don't you know how to behave, woman? You don't curtsy either. But Molly pushed him aside and went up to the unicorn, scolding her as though she was a straight milk cow. Where have you been? Before the whiteness and the shining horn, Molly shrank to a shrilling beetle. But this time it was the unicorn's old dark eyes that looked down. I'm here now, she said. Molly laughed with her lips flat. And what good is it to me that you're here now? Where were you 20 years ago, 10 years ago? How dare you? How dare you come to me now? When I'm like this, with a flap of her hand, she summoned herself up. Barren face, desert eyes, and yellowing heart. I wish you had never come. Why do you come now? The tears began to slide down the sides of her nose. The unicorn made no reply, and Smendrick said, She's the last. She is the last unicorn in the world. She would be, Molly sniffed. It would be the last unicorn in the world that came to Molly Grew. She reached up to lay her hand on the unicorn's cheek, but both of them flinched a little, and the touch came to rest on a swift, shriveling place under her jaw. Molly said, It's all right. I forgive you. Unicorns are not to be forgiven, the magician felt himself growing giddy with jealousy. Not only the touch, but something like a secret that was moving between Molly and the unicorn. Unicorns are for beginners, he said. For innocence and purity, for newness. Unicorns are for young girls. Molly was stroking the unicorn's throat as timidly as though she were blind. She dried her grimy tears in the white mane. You don't know much about unicorns, she said. The sky was gray jade now, and the trees that had been drawn on the dark a moment ago were real trees again, hissing in the dark wind. Smendrick said coldly, looking at the unicorn, We must go. Molly agreed promptly, Eh, before the men stumble on us and slit your throat for cheating them, you poor lads. She looked over her shoulder. I had some things I wanted to take, but they don't matter now. I'm ready. Smendrick barred her way again as, he stepped, as she stepped forward. You can't come with us. We are on a quest. His voice and eyes were as stern as he could make them. 
but he could feel his nose being bewildered. He had never been able to discipline his nose. Molly's own face closed like a castle against him, trunding out against the guns and slings and cauldrons of boiling lead. Who are you to say we? I am her guide, the magician said importantly. The unicorn made a soft, wondering sound, like a cat calling her kittens. Molly laughed aloud and made it back. You don't know much about unicorns, she repeated. She's letting you travel with her, though I can't think why. But she has no need of you. She doesn't need me either, heaven knows. But she'll take me too. Ask her. The unicorn made the soft sound again, and the castle of Molly's face lowered the drawbridge and threw wide even its deepest keep. Ask her, she said. Smendrick knew the answer by the sinking in his heart. He meant to be wise, but then his envy and emptiness hurt him, and he heard himself cry out loudly. Never! I forbid it! I, Smendrick the magician, his voice darkened, and even his nose grew menacing. Be wary of wowsing a riser's wrath, rousing. Even if I chose, I could turn you into a frog. I should laugh myself sick, said Molly Grew pleasantly. You're handy with fairy tales, but you can't turn cream into butter. Her eyes, her eyes gleamed with a sudden mean understanding. Have sense, man, she said. What were you going to do with the last unicorn in the world? Keep her in a cage? The magician turned away to keep Molly from seeing his face. He did not look directly at the unicorn, but stole small sights of her as stealthily as though he could be made to put them back. White and secret, morning horned, she regarded him with piercing gentleness. But he could not touch her. He said to the thin woman, You don't even know where we're bound. Do you think it matters to me? Molly asked. She made the cat sound once more. Smendrick said, We are journeying to King Haggard's country to find the Red Bull. Molly's skin was frightened for a moment. Whatever her bones believed or her heart knew, but then the unicorn breathed softly into her cupped hand, and Molly smiled as she closed her fingers on the warmth. Well, you're going the wrong way, she said. The sun was rising as she led them back the way they had come, past Cully, still slumped asleep on his stump, across the clearing, and away. The men were returning, dead branches cracked close to hand, and brush broke with a splashing sound. Once they had to crouch amongst storms while two of Cully's wary rogues limped by, wondering bitterly whether the vision of Robin Hood had been real or not. I smelt them, the first man was saying. Eyes are easy to deceive and cheats by nature, but surely no shadow has a smell. The eyes are perjurers, right enough, grunted the second man, who seemed to be wearing a swamp. But you do truly trust the testimony of your ears, or your nose, of the root of your tongue? Not I, my friend. The universe, the universe lies to our senses, and they lie to us. And how can we ourselves be anything but liars? For myself, I trust neither message nor method messenger, neither what I'm told nor what I see. There may be truth somewhere, but it never gets down to me. Ah, said the first man with a black grin. But you came running with the rest of us to go with Robin Hood, and you hunted for him all night, crying and calling like the rest of us. Why not save yourself the trouble, if you know better? Well, you never know, the other answered thickly, spitting mud. I could be wrong. There were a prince and a princess sitting by a stream in a wooded valley. Their seven servants had set up a scarlet canopy beneath a tree, 
and the royal young couple ate a box lunch to the accompaniment of lutes and therables. They hardly spoke a word to one another until they had finished the meal. And then the princess sighed and said, well, I suppose I'd better get the silly business over with. The prince began to read a magazine. You might as well, said the princess. But the prince kept on reading. The princess made a sign to two of the servants, who began to play an older music on their lutes. Then she took a few steps on the grass, held up a bridle of butter, and called, Here, unicorn, here. Here, my pretty, come to me. Come, 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 come. The prince snickered. It's not your chickens you're calling, you know, he remarked without looking up. Why don't you sing something instead of clucking like that? Well, I'm doing the best I can, the princess cried. I've never called one of these things before. But after a little silence, she began to sing. I am the king's daughter, and if I care to care, the moon has no mistress would flutter in my hair. No one dares to cherish what I crave. Never have I hunger that I did not have. I am the king's daughter, and when I grow old, the prison of my person shackles my soul, and I would run away and beg from door to door just to see your shadow once and never more. So she sang and sang again, and then she called, Nice unicorn, pretty, 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 for a little longer. And then she said angrily, Well, I've done as much as I can do. I'm going home. The prince yawned and folded his magazine. You satisfied custom well enough, he told her. And no one expected more than that. It was just a formality. Now we can be married. Yes, the princess said. Now we can be married. The servants began to pack everything away again, while the two of the lutes played joyous wedding music. The princess's voice was a little sad and defiant as she said, If there really were such things as unicorns, one would have come to me. I called as sweetly as anyone could. And I have the golden bridle, and of course I'm pure and untouched. For all of me you are, the prince answered indifferently. As I say, you, cut, you satisfy custom. You don't satisfy my father, but then neither do I. That would take a unicorn. He was tall, and his face was soft and pleasant as a marshmallow. When they and their retinue were gone, the unicorn came out of the woods, followed by Molly and the magician, and they took up their journey again. A long time later, wandering in another country where there were no streams and nothing green, Molly asked why she had not gone to the princess's song. Spindrick drew near to listen to the answer, though he stayed on the side of the unicorn. He never walked on Molly's side. The unicorn said, that king's daughter would never have run away to see my shadow. If I had shown myself, if she had known me, she would have been more frightened than if she had seen a dragon, for no one makes promises to a dragon. I remember that once it never mattered to me whether or not princesses meant what they sang. I went to them all and laid my head in their lap, and a few of them rode on my back, though most were afraid. But I've no time for them now, princesses or kitchen maids. I've no time. Molly said something strange then, for a woman who never slept a night through, without waking many times to see if the unicorn was still there, and whose dreams were all of golden bridles and gentle young thieves. It's the princesses who have no time, she said. The sky spins and drags everything along with it, princesses and magicians and poor Cully and all. But you stand still. You never see anything just once. I wish you could be a princess for a little while, or a flower, or a duck. 
something that can't wait. She sang a verse of a doleful, limping song, halting after each line as she recalled the next. Who has no choices, needs not choose. We must, who have none. We love, but we lose. What is gone is gone. Smendrick peered over the unicorn's back into Molly's territory. Where'd you hear that song, he demanded. It was the first time he had spoken to her since the dawn when she joined the journey. Molly shook her head. I don't remember. I've known it a long time. The land had grown leaner by day, and they traveled on, and the faces of the folk they met had grown bitter with their brown grass. But to the unicorn's eyes, Molly was becoming a softer country, full of pools and caves, where old flowers became burning out of the ground, under the dirt and indifference. She appeared only 37 or 38 years old, no older than Smendrick, surely, despite the magician's birthdayless face. Her rough hair bloomed and her skin quickened, and her voice was nearly as gentle to all things as it had been when she spoke to the unicorn. Her eyes would never be joyous, any more than they could ever turn green or blue. But they too had wakened up in the earth. She walked eagerly to King Hagger's realm on bare, blistered feet, and she sang often. And far away, on the other side of the unicorn, Smendrick and ma the magician stalked in silence. His black cloak was spouting holes, coming undone, and so was he. The rain that renewed Molly did not fall on him, and he seemed ever more parched and deserted, like a land itself. The unicorn could not heal him. A touch of her horn could have brought him back from death, but over despair she had no power, nor over magic that had come and gone. So they journeyed together, following the fleeing darkness into the wind that lasted like nails. The rind of the country cracked, and the fresh of it peeled back into gullies and ravines or shriveled into scabby hills. The sky was so high and pale that it disappeared during the day, and the unicorn sometimes thought that the, tree, the three of them must look as blind and helpless as slugs in the sunlight, with their log and their dank rock tumbling away. But she was a unicorn still, with the unicorn's way of growing more beautiful in evil times and places. Even the breath of the toads that grumbled in the ditches and the dead trees stopped when they saw her. Toads would have been more hospitable to sullen folk than Hagger's country. Their villages lay bare and bald as bones between knife-like hills where nothing grew, and they themselves had hearts unmistakably as sour and boiled as beer. Their children stoned strangers into town, and their dogs chased them out again. Several of the dogs never returned, for Smendrick had developed a quick hand and a taste for mongrel. This infuriated the town folk, as no mere thief would have done. They gave nothing away, and they knew that their enemies were those who did. The unicorn was wary of human beings, watching her companions as they slept, seeing the shadows of their dreams scurry over their faces. She would feel herself bending under the heaviness of knowing their names. Then she would run until morning to ease the ache, swifter than rain, swift as loss, racing to catch up with the time that she had known nothing at all but the sweetness of being herself. Often then, between the rush of one breath and the reach of another, it came to her that Smendrick and Molly were long dead, and King Haggard as well, and the Red Bull met and mastered, so long, so long ago that the grandchildren of the stars had seen it all happen and were withering now, turning to coal, and that she was still the only unicorn left in the world. Damn. <laughs> That's rough. Then, one owlless autumn evening, they rounded a ridge and saw the castle. It crept into the sky from the far side of the deep valley, thin and twisted, bristling with thorny turrets, dark and jagged as a giant's grin. Molly left outright, 
Molly laughed outright. But the unicorn shivered. For to her, the crooked tower seemed to be groping towards her in the dust beyond the castle. The sea glimmered like iron. Haggard's fortress, Smendrick murmured, shaking his head in wonderment. Haggard's dire keep. A witch built it for him, they say. But he wouldn't pay her to work, so she put a curse on the castle. She she swore that one day it would sink into the sea with Haggard when his greed caused the sea to overflow. Then she gave a fearful shriek, the way they do, and vanished into a sulfurous puff. Haggard moved in right away. He said no tyrant's castle was complete without a curse. I don't blame him for not paying her, Molly Grew said scornfully. I can jump on that place myself and scatter it like a pile of leaves. Anyway, I hope the witch has something interesting to do while she waits for the curse to come home. The sea is greater than anyone's greed. Bony birds struggled across the sky, screeling, Help me! Help me! Help me! And blacks and small black shapes bobbed at the lightless windows of King Haggard's castle. A wet, slow smell found the unicorn. Where's the bull? she asked. Where does Haggard keep the bull? No one keeps the red bull, the magician replied quietly. I've heard it that he roams at night and lies up at day in great cavern beneath the castle. We'll know soon enough, but that's not our problem now. The nearer danger lies there. He pointed down into the valley, where the few lights had begun to shiver. That's Hasgate, he said. Molly made no answer, but she touched the unicorn with a hand as cold as a cloud. She often put her hands on the unicorn when she was sad or tired or afraid. This is King Haggard's town, Smendrick said. The first one he took when he came over the sea. The one that lay longest under his hand. It is a wicked name, though none I ever met could say exactly why. No one goes into Hagsgate. And nothing comes out of it but tales and children must behave. Monsters, werebeasts, witch covens, demons in broad daylight, and the like. And there's something evil in Hagsgate, I think. Mommy Fortuna would never go there. And once she said that Haggard was not safe while Hagsgate stood. There... There's something there. He peered closely at Molly as she spoke. For it was one bitter pleasure these days to see her frightened in spite of the white presence of the unicorn. But she answered to him quite calmly, with her hands at her sides. I've heard Hagsgate called, the town that no man knows. Maybe a secret was waiting for a woman to find out. A woman and a unicorn. And what's to be done with you? Smendrick smiled then. I'm no man, he said. I'm a magician with no magic, and that's not one at all. The foxfire lights of Hagsgate grew brighter as the unicorn watched them, but not even a flint flared in King Haggard's castle. It was too dark to see men moving on the walls, but across the valley she could hear the soft bloom of armor and clatter of pikes on stone. Sentinels had met and marched away. The smell of the rebels sported all around the unicorn, as she stared down the thin, brambly path that led to Hexgate. <gasps> Woo! <laughs> Thank you so much for joining. See you tomorrow. <laughs> Hot. Hot. Yeah.